for podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon, live from the DraftKings Sportsbook and Wild Rose Studio. This is Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. All right, welcome back. Hour number two, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, and now on 106.3 FM. In about 20 minutes, Zubin Mahente from ESPN will join us in his regular spot. We'll go around the world of sports with Zubin. Well, our next guest wears a couple of hats, attorney Nate Bolton from Hedberg and Bolton, Senator uh, state Senator Nate Bolton on the name and image and likeness that is moving its way through the state. Nate, uh, one of the sponsors of that bill. We're going to bring both of those topics up. The, uh, the employment portion of it will be the Major League Baseball pitcher who was suing the Astros. Uh, he pitched in the, against the Astros and was, Promptly demoted, never made it to the majors again. Of course, the cheating scandal had a lot to do with that. He said after the game, he felt what the Astros, they knew what was coming. Well, they did, as we come to find out. Nate Trenton, Ken, thanks for coming on, Nate Bolton. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, interesting topics today. Yeah, indeed there are. And uh, no better to talk to than you about both of them. So let's start with Major League Baseball, first of all, Nate. I, I saw the um, I saw the story yesterday. You were the first person that I thought of because when the story broke, it, it seemed very apparent to me that kind of these fringe guys, right, maybe the last pitcher on the roster, guys that are really going to have to scrape and claw to stick in the end of the show, they go out against the Astros. The Astros light them up, and there are nine such pitchers in 2017 that faced the Astros, got shelled, and were promptly sent back down to the minors have never made it back to Major League Baseball again. Well, one of those pitchers has decided to file a uh, a lawsuit against MLB. I think that uh, Mike Bolsinger, from where I sit... Not just because he's a former Blue Jays reliever, but he sued the Astros. If he wins, by the way, he wants the money that he would get, any damages to go to charity. But on its face, Nate, the suit was filed in Los Angeles Superior Court. You're an employment attorney. If somebody, a player came to you with that, uh, would you take that case? You know, the first thing I would say is it's far from a slam dunk to make this kind of claim. Um, And the reason why is he wasn't the specific target of the wrongful conduct. So um, you're taking a a doctrine in uh, business law, tortious interference, doing something wrong in a business relationship to create your own advantage. But here, this isn't like stealing the recipe from Coke and taking it to Pepsi and and doing it and knowing you're doing harm to a competitor. This was just the Astros are trying to, you know, do, do their own thing to be more successful themselves. They don't care necessarily if an opposing pitcher ends up getting a better contract or a worse contract based on what they're doing. So most states, it's pretty hard to make a recovery. California has done a little more in, in the area of making it um, even a recoverable action if it's a negligent uh, act as opposed to intentionally harming someone else's expected contract relation. So as a pitcher, your expected contract relation is, if I go out, pitch well, I'm going to get a great major league contract. 
the Astros interfered with that by, in bad faith, uh, abusing the, the rules of the game to, you know, essentially be able to tell their, their batters every pitch that, that's coming, what's coming their way. And the and, and result is, you know, this audience that you mentioned, nine pitchers who are, are, are not able to have other auditions in Major League Baseball other than the one or two times that they get called up and facing Astros that know what pitch is coming makes that audition go a lot rougher, as it did for him. So Bolsinger is looking for $31 million in bonuses uh, to come back to him. Is this? I thought more, he was gonna, it was all going to go to charities. Was is he going to keep? Well, it, and where that money ends up, yeah, we right. will see. But here, but you know, right. when you hear these kind of figures, thirty-one million dollars, those types of things, is that a number that a lot of times lawyers or the plaintiffs are just going to throw out there, looking, knowing that it's not going to be thirty-one million dollars, but starting big, knowing it's going to be something smaller. Certainly, there, there's the idea of throwing a, a high and tight fastball. Uh, at somebody and say, okay, I'm going to brush you off the plate a little bit and let you know if things go all our way, here's here's what you're looking at. Uh, and then you know, potentially getting down to a number that, okay, what, what's it actually going to take to resolve this claim? Um, but I think the $31 million makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's grounded in an, an actual number that you can argue to a jury of. This, this was an ill-gotten gain by the Astros that, that should be taken away from them. Hmm. So this could. Uh, what was the was it the United States football USFL that settled for a big like they wanted tens of millions of dollars and they settled for a yeah. buck. <laughs> yes. So so yeah, the, the the cruelest jury victory you can get is yeah. the we recognize your rights were violated, but here's a dollar. We don't think you're entitled <laughs> to really money. So here's a dollar to acknowledge the wrong. Um, it, and that, that could be a result of a case like this. Yeah. That, the USFL, right? Did the they, USFL. They, they got a was, dollar right. from the buck. NFL. That's right. That's funny. A rough, rough yeah. place to go. But they did, but they did, you could say they won the suit, though, right? Correct. They, they won. A jury said that they, their rights were violated. They just couldn't prove up the, the actual damages, so the jury acknowledged that the legal wrong was committed with nominal damages in the form of $1. And then the lawyer can put that in the wind column and, and another one there. Do you guys have a tracking system, what everybody's record is when it goes to trial? You you lawyers, you guys all know, right? So the lawyers make 30 cents of that dollar. <laughs> right, right. That's the way That's it goes. Right. Do you, you guys, like yeah. an aggregate type, like you get in the newspaper back in the day with the standings, you guys got an email with all that, something like that, an Excel sheet? Yeah. Well, you you could always make a win out of something. Okay, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we we got more than they offered for settlement, or uh-huh. or you know, you, you you still got your day in court. So so you know, it, wins and losses are are all relative in in the legal system. Hmm, interesting. So Nate, uh, just to wrap up on this, and then we're going to get the name, image, and likeness. As I know, it's moving forward. Sure. And it's a big day uh, here in our state today. You can uh, clue us in as to what's going on there. But uh, so if you, if Mike Bolsinger came to you, you would tell him that you've got an uphill climb, that uh, you know you've that you might not take this case. As I guess was is what I what I heard you say without saying it. This is one of those times where you want to make sure that your client has the right expectations gotcha. of the lawsuit. Um, so I would say I wouldn't take the case, but I, I would want to make sure my client is very aware of, of the risks in going forward. But there, there's a very limited number of plaintiffs that make sense to bring a claim like this. There's no doubt he, he is one of those, those claimants that, that could succeed. 
So, Nate, uh, Ken mentioned that we're moving forward name, image, and likeness here inside our state, and, and right. it continues across the country. Just give us a little bit of a background here today as we're going through things, where we're at in the whole process. So this is the first real hurdle. Um, apart from having a bill introduced, um, it, it's kind of like the how a bill becomes a law uh, video, that the cartoon that we know. <laughs> Uh, it's got to go through the, the legislative committee process. And the first hurdle is a subcommittee of three senators will review this legislation today at four. Um, and that's the opportunity where the public can come and, and be a part of the conversation in shaping law. And we'll hear from you know representatives of various communities today. Uh, I would expect that the regents will be there and let us know what their thoughts are. Um, you know, it, there will be different different people that show up that have some interest in the legislation today at four that will uh, testify at that subcommittee hearing. And then that group of three legislators will either sign or not sign the subcommittee report, advancing it to the full uh, committee to be considered. So this would be a small hurdle. The next hurdle is, is a much larger one, which is getting it out of committee and eligible for debate by the full Senate. Uh, Nate Bolton, uh, Hedberg and Bolton is our guest, of course, State Senator uh, Nate Bolton. So, Nate, uh, kind of give us a, uh, uh, since we last spoke, what's the feedback that you've received to, to this uh, to this bill being introduced? And, and for the life of me, I can't remember your Republican colleague. I know he's a local guy, Urbandale or Clive. So give me his name. and, yeah, and Brad Zahn. Brad Zahn, thank you. Former mayor, right? I think he's a mayor. Correct. Yeah. Um, Correct. So what's the feedback that you've received, kind of, you know, um, unofficial or people that have spoken with you or members, uh, colleagues of yours down at the uh, at the legislature? What are they telling you? So in terms of the, the community feedback, I was actually surprised. I was expecting a little more pushback on this. I think the, the larger community has, has come to a realization that, that this system really is not sustainable and some things do have to change. And I think that's been acknowledged um, by the Regents institutions that I've spoken with. Um, I, I think there is a, a definite acknowledgement of the problem. Now, the hard part is how do we solve it, and is it the right thing for the state of Iowa to step in and try to solve it or to be waiting for congressional action? And, and the, the pushback I have to, to those saying, why don't we wait for Congress to do something? Now, the EA sports lawsuit is, is plenty old for this topic to still not have been dealt with responsibly by the NCAA and Congress. So the states have to start doing their part to protect their own citizens and and push the NCAA and Congress to do something. Does it feel like a little bit of the last stand from the NCAA? They're going to put out a, mm, well a strong jaw and say, hey, we're going to dig in our heels here, but ultimately they know the way this is going to end out. At least it feels that way for me. Do you see it the same way, Nate? I think so, and I think... There's finally a little bit of realization by the NCAA that constantly going into courtrooms and going into legislatures and going into Congress and saying, this is our system, this is the way we've always done it, we have to keep it this way, isn't working anymore. And so now we have to start making adjustments. And we saw this happen with the, you know, the Olympic Committee and, and how they dealt with the amateur mm-hmm. athlete. And the NCAA has, has built a system now that no longer can sustain itself if it stays on, on its current uh, trajectory. So we're going to have to do some things to protect student-athletes better as they've become more and more professional. Um, and, and one of those things is give them the right that every other college student has, just to be able to, to market their own face, their own name, 
um, and 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 do that in a, in a way that doesn't eliminate them from a college athletics career. Uh, Nate Bolton, Hedberg and Bolton, Senator Nate Bolton, uh, joining us. Nate, last thing for you: um, go through that process again. When's the the major hurdle? Today is you know the first step, but you said the next one is going to be the you know maybe the the, the most difficult hurdle timeline for us, if you would, Nate. Right. So the next two two hurdles. So if the bill comes out of subcommittee today at, at four with with the signature of at least two or three senators, then it's eligible to be considered by the full um, education committee. If advances if it advances out of the education committee, it becomes eligible for full four debate. There's no specific. You know, it, it, if it passes today, it'll be up in the next education committee kind of connection there. Uh, it's really up to the chair of the education committee to decide when it would come up, uh, but that's that's probably in the next, uh, you know, probably two or three weeks. I would expect to see that advance if if it does have momentum beyond the subcommittee level. Great stuff, Nate. And uh, two or three weeks, we'll be uh, back on your uh, texting you again to line you up for our program. Thank you for what you do for us, uh, Hedberg and Bolton Hedberglaw dot com uh, for Nate's full time job, Senator. Well, you'd probably say that maybe the senator takes as much of your time uh, as the full time gig, <laughs> Nate. Uh, regardless, thank you for what you do for us. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you. Nate Bolton, uh, Attorney Nate Bolton, State Senator Nate Bolton, name, image, and likeness moving forward locally. And it's in, there's a committee that's uh, hearing it in, this, in the uh, Senate today okay. in Washington. And Mark Emmert is actually there pitching, uh, making his case. I did find this interesting, Trent, timely, that uh, yesterday USA Today reported that the ACC, the Big 12, and the NCAA have spent three-quarters of a million dollars which maybe doesn't sound like a lot of money, or maybe it does. I don't know. Uh, but they've spent three-quarters of a million dollars in this last little while lobbying Congress to fight name, image, and likeness. Uh-huh. So the ACC and the Big 12, if you think that the conferences are getting behind these mm-hmm. athletes, not so fast. Uh, Zubin Mahente will join the program coming up in a, just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, let's help you pay those bills with iHeartRadio, 1460 KXNO, and now on 106.3 FM. Text the keyword jock to 200, 200 right now. It's your chance to win $1,000. That's jock to 200, 200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Around the world of sports with Zubin Mahente when Trent and I continue. We're Miller and Condon weekdays from 10 until noon on Des Moines Sports Station 1460 KXNO and now on 106.3. For a limited time. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Welcome back, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Seems like it's been, well, it was football season. Last time we spoke to Zubin, right. I think the last uh, last time Zubin was on, I was in Vegas, so it's been a long time. We've just passed wild card weekend, Zubin, man. we got a lot of catching up to do. How you been, Zubin? I'm doing well. I think I was on with Trent a couple of weeks ago, then I lost my voice last week, the only way to keep me speechless. And... <laughs> And now I'm ready to go with you guys again. I just heard John on with you last hour. I was just eating lunch, popped it on the app, and uh, great to hear his voice. Terrible news about Halliburton. Yeah. We were actually trying to, you know, get some juice going for that ISU-KU game on Big Monday and talk about Halliburton and get people to know about him. But 
obviously that's gone by the way. <laughs> yeah, sadly, you're 100 percent right, Zubin. You know, I thought I thought you maybe would have lost your voice or your your at least your uh, your want to talk if. Going back to Sunday night, if Northwestern was able to finish the job against your alma mater, Rutgers in the rack, boy, I thought the, the Cats had him. You know, it's one of those situations where, for them, you know, with Michigan State falling out of the pole, I think that's sort of become the biggest story in the Big Ten. But you wonder just about sustainability. We were, and we, I know we were texting about the, the XFL and sustainability, but... I'm enjoying the ride while it's there with Rutgers. I don't know how sustainable it is for Steve Peichel, for Pat Chambers, for Brad Underwood, for a lot of these schools that have made sort of the turn that you would expect. I know Nebraska, Northwestern are sort of down there. But it'll be interesting to see how sustainable this is, if they can move it on from a recruiting standpoint. Uh, Because otherwise, you know, one thing that's gone underrated, I've tried to pitch this as a story for a long time, and it's really (laughs) I haven't been having a lot of success here. But every year we talk about how great the SEC is in attendance in college football, and there's no league like it. The Big Ten has led college basketball in attendance. Trent, we may have talked about this at one point, um, up the dial, as Ken used to say. <laughs> I think they've led the college basketball in attendance for over 40 years. I think it's been over 41 oh, consecutive years the Big Ten has led college ba- basketball in attendance. And even if some of the dregs, like Penn State and Rutgers, that never used to fill the cup up, at their home arena, can continue to do it. Um, it'll be great for the league as a whole. It'll look better for Commissioner Delaney if Rutgers could have some re- residual value in the league as he looks his po- at his post-retirement. But that's one thing about the league I've never really thought was accentuated enough. We give so much love because it just means more in the SEC. Well, in, the, uh, in college basketball, I mean, from Purdue to Indiana to Michigan State to Michigan to Iowa, who I know has had some up-and-down attendance issues, but over four Great decade every single year leading college basketball in attendance. Speaking of college hoops, and here on the local front, we got Luca Garza in contention for the National Player of the Year. There's other guys certainly up there, depending on what direction you want to go, from Devin Dobson to Obi Toppin of Dayton, and on and on and on. If I will finish out the season, okay, they go four and three, three and four down the stretch, and say get beat in the first round of the Big Ten tournament. Is that going to be good enough for him to be? even with the great national, the numbers national player of the year, just because it seems like it trends to go to those teams that are on the top lines, the top two lines of the NCAA tournament. Could a middling Iowa team with Garza and those numbers still win national player of the year? I believe so. I certainly think he would be a cinch for first-team All-American. I'll tell you what, we're working on something for later this month. I was actually just talking about it with somebody yesterday. Later this month, and I know it's lost a little bit of shine, obviously, because of Michigan State being out of the poll now. But later this month, I think it's February 25th, you guys have the schedule in front of you, the Iowa schedule. Mm -hmm. That is supposed to be Garza versus Winston on ESPN. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to pump that up as much as we can, because on that same night, um, uh, Obi Toppin plays and Vernon Carey Jr. plays. Now, Caden Pritchard's not playing that night. I don't think Marcus Howard is playing that night. But we're trying to find a day because, you know, obviously this is the antithesis of last year where it's just Zion's crowning achievement because he was obviously far and away the best player. We're trying to still get people up to speed on Obi Toppin being a zero-star recruit. Dayton could actually be a Final Four team. Who is Luca Garza? He Wait, he had a cyst removed from his body? I just don't think there's a lot of people that know about this year's candidates. Devon Dotson, Azebuke, uh, that kid uh, Butler from um, uh, Baylor. So it's one of those situations where – 
we're trying to use February 25th, even though I know it's getting closer to Champ Week and it's really late in the season. But if it's truly wide open the way people say it is, we'll try to spotlight Garza and Winston in an actual game, which could actually end up being a really big game, as you know, Trent. I, I think you said they hadn't won the Big Ten a share of it since, uh, I think, 19, what, was it 40 years ago, you said? Mm-hmm. Right? They haven't won it outright in 50 years. If I'm not mistaken, outright in 50, a share in 40 so that February 25th date, we are circling with those two Big Ten guys, plus Toppin, plus the best player on Duke, which obviously is always going to get some run. So that's kind of the date we're pinpointing if everybody can kind of stay in the race and play as consistently as they can until that date. Hmm. Zubin Mahente from ESPN. Well, let's stay with college basketball one more, Zubin. Who do you think is the best team in college basketball? And, you know, when you're when you're on the set uh, working with uh, some of the basketball minds that you're fortunate enough to work with, who do they feel uh, is college basketball's best team? Most people I have talked to at this point think it's Baylor. Now, I think it's part and parcel. Like Bill has told us a couple of weeks ago, nobody can stop Florida State's offense. But that doesn't really make you a great collective team. It does make you very potent on one side of the ball. Now, we didn't see that last night generally against Duke, but he does love that unit for Florida State. But collectively, I really think you look at it and say, Baylor's kind of earned the spot. Longest win streak ever in school history. 17 years for Scott Drew. Two Elite Eights. Still waiting for that first Final Four. And if you're old enough, obviously, to remember what happened that precipitated his arrival in Waco with Dave Bliss. It just turns out to be an amazing story. We are keeping tabs on that, trying to do a story on everything that's sort of happened with this particular basketball program. I think it's interesting to note that Baylor had one loss. It came to Washington on a neutral floor. Washington has completely fallen off the face of the earth. Uh, And then Gonzaga, who is the number one team uh, prior to Baylor, has one loss. And that came to Michigan, who, relatively speaking, has sort of fallen off the map, too. So I think it's sort of interesting, if you look at the top three teams, and who is able to kind of get to them, granted it was earlier in the season, it's two teams that right now are fighting for their lives, and that just goes to show you how crazy this sport has been this year. Zubin, let's jump over to baseball. Ken and I, the proposal that was laid out, it was in the New York Post yesterday, and and everybody has jumped aboard about expanding the playoffs to seven teams. The selection show, if you will, on Sunday, where the number 2 seed gets to pick who they're going to play in the first round. We're both big fans of it. I know there are detractors out there, including one of the most uh, forefront of them, Trevor Bauer, and his his comments (laughs) yesterday on Twitter. But uh, your thoughts overall on the proposal laid out there and what baseball could do to expand the playoffs even more? I absolutely love it. I saw Verducci uh, write a great piece on it yesterday, and every time the piece went on, I loved everything about it. Expand it. Best of three at one venue selection show like everything was great the idea that it could actually be implemented for the 2022 season Mm -hmm. is amazing i mean think how long it took for baseball to decide you know what if we want to walk this guy no need to throw the four intentional pitches just let him trot over to first base. that took like like forever (laughs) to come into existence and now they're talking about rocking the foundation of the sport entirely in a positive way and it could come within the span of two to three years it just goes to show you how much baseball obviously knows they need to change. I mean, Trent, we're in the same age demographic. We like baseball. You like it more than I. Ken, you're a little bit of an older demographic, but I know you love baseball. But it's the people that are half our age. They need to get them in. Now, baseball still a $10 billion a year sport, but if you take away the TV money and the revenue at the local, regional, and national level, 
gates are down, games are three hours and ten minutes. That's as long as they've been, even though the, the mandate was to slice it and to dice it, they haven't been able to do it as well. So I love this. I think this is just another way to get younger people into the sport. It's just it's a misnomer. You look at the money that baseball's bringing in and you think it's healthy, but I think they're really looking to the next generation of fans with something like this. This is going to get people's attention. The TV networks are going to want to have more teams involved, and baseball knows that they can drive up the price for the TV package if there's seven teams instead of five. They know they can drive up the price of the package if they were to give one of the three TV partners right now that selection show. That would actually drive up the price of things as well. So I think it's a, it's an amazing move. It's a bold move, um, but it's amazing to think for a sport that has sort of been very, very cautious with change. The idea that they can implement this within two or three years and completely change the way baseball is seen in the postseason. And Verducci wrote one other thing, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, I know you guys watch sports every night like your listeners and I do. One thing that Verducci wrote that I thought was a really good point is more and more fans of all ages are becoming event fans. It's just because his point was we're so inundated with content. There are games tonight on ESPN, ESPN2, FS1, ESPN+. ESPN3, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. We have so much content coming at us. It's almost overwhelming that the only thing people really stop for now are events. The baseball selection show would be an event that would supersede all the regular season games. So I thought Tom's point was a good one. You can get as much baseball or as much any sport as you want. The content will just flow up to your eyes if you want to watch all day and all night. But there's truly few events that will stop all of us and make us watch. And baseball, frankly, doesn't have that. The NFL has that. College football has that. March Madness is there. Baseball just does not have that collectively. This sort of change would make that an event for baseball. And I think more than anything, that might be really important for the next generation of fans. You're preaching the choir, Zubin Manate, for all those reasons. I mean, sports talk shows across the country. It's football season, right? And it's uh, it's King football, and King football is going to have to take a little step aside when we're talking about maybe some of those matchups and speculating. For all those reasons, Zubin, I, I could not agree with you more. If they can do that, fix the blackout rule, and everybody in baseball, every all baseball fans will be happy. You know, you mentioned contracts and uh, television contracts. Let's go there before we do the XFL, because I do want to save some time to get your take on the XFL. But there is another big football story, and it has to do with your network, or certainly the one that you work at, and that's ESPN and potentially ABC with one of their marquee events. Uh, that's Monday Night Football uh, and flex scheduling that is on the table, I guess, uh, with their next uh, collective bargaining agreement. Uh, ABC, perhaps, uh, along with ESPN, both carrying the game. Uh, on the surface, Zubin, I like it. I like the fact that you'll be able to flex into a better game on Monday night. I get the logistic problems. You know, fans of visiting fan bases that fly in for that Sunday. They're going to a game Sunday. They fly in Saturday. Whoops, now i got to change my plane ticket. That's not cheap. Whoops, i got to change my reservation. That's not cheap at my hotel I'm staying at. So there are some problems, but on the surface, Zubin, I really hope that this happens. I would agree. I think the fan situation is a tough one because, sure, there is a little difference between watching a game you're expecting to watch at 1 or 425 and then watching it at 830. And then obviously having to stay another night, like you said, getting another hotel, changing your flights, all that. But I would also say sometimes you have to think about the larger group at hand. On any given Sunday, on any given game, there is 
a ton more people watching on television than actually attend the game. And obviously the cost of attendance to go to a game is steep and it's not cheap. Um, but, you know, you're going to have 70,000 people at a game. And your average NFL game, if you regionalize it, if you take it from Monday night football to the Sunday night game to the regional telecast Sunday afternoon, you're averaging about 15.8 million fans per game. If you take it from the lowest regional game all the way up to Sunday night football or America's Game of the Week Sunday at 425 on Fox, you're talking about 15.8 million viewers versus the 70,000 that are at the game. And I certainly wouldn't want to inconvenience those 70,000 people. But I think in the numbers game, you have to do what's right for the 15.8 million people that are there and are overwhelmingly watching on TV and watch on TV from 1 to 11 o'clock on Sunday. So I don't think you would have to feel bad about trying to inconvenience some of those fans, knowing that the larger portion of fans, those that watch on TV, would certainly benefit from a better Monday night matchup. The one thing I would say about that is right now, and I think we've talked about this before, I think if I was on a year or two ago, we would have said, well, you know, the rights bubble is going to burst. I mean, who could afford this much? But if you take a look at what the PGA Tour got from CBS and NBC, I mean, you know, this is this is a tour that's getting like a 1.7 rating, which is not great on a Saturday for a random event. And they're basically able to ask for hundreds of millions of dollars. At this particular point, the bubble isn't going to burst. The NFL knows they can basically, uh, you know, have the networks ask for a blank check. <laughs> if you're going to ask for a blank check, going back to our baseball discussion, uh, give everything you can. If that means Monday Night Football is still standalone, but we can increase the value of Monday Night Football by putting a flex on it and thereby increase the amount we could get from all the TV networks, that's interesting. As you, as you know, Monday Night Football is up after the 2021 season, whereas the deals at CBS and Fox are up after the 2022 season. So it's not like everybody is jockeying for the same package. One package is probably going to be decided before the AFC and NFC packages are decided the following year. But I do think if you're in the NFL and you're saying, what can we do to maximize the TV revenue from every single contract we have? And if the first thing is to offer flex scheduling for a package that didn't have it, knowing that we could drive up the price, I think if the NFL, it's a pretty easy ask. Speaking of Monday Night Football, Zubin, can you break some news? Who's going to be the crew Hmm. next year? (laughs) I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think that's obviously a story to follow. But I do think one thing I would tell you about Monday Night real quick is that it's one of those situations where, um, as you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, and I think the trades have said it, that if there was a flex sort of situation, the games would probably move back to ABC. I think that's probably mm-hmm. something that's been said and speculated. And that probably does make the most sense if you get the best attractive matchups like NBC does for Sunday night. The best thing to do, I would presume, this is just as a fan, not an employee or knowing anything on the inside, just as a fan, if you do get a more desirable package, you would certainly want to put it on a higher platform, and the highest platform we obviously have uh, is the ABC Television Network. Yeah, it's very interesting, and you see that conversation a lot with ESPN, and it extended this weekend to the XFL as that first game was over on ABC. Speaking of uh, the Monday Night Booth, and not just that aside, but as a whole, Jay Cutler has been back in the news about the possibility of joining a network and being either an analyst on games or even being a studio guy. Now, Ken and I, one of our dirty little secrets is we watch a couple episodes of Very Cavallari and, and watch Jay be a goober on that reality TV show with his wife, Kristen Cavallari. But him in either of those roles, he is just he's such a different kind of character. I could see it going incredibly poorly. I could be, see him, though, also being really good in that role. How do you think Jay Cutler will translate to TV? I think he would be good for one reason. To me, and, you know, mores change. You stick your finger up in the air, see which way the wind is blowing. Right now, 
I believe, the most important trait for anybody on TV, and you see this with Romo, who is inextricably linked with Cutler, because had Cutler not gone back to the Miami Dolphins, he would have been the Fox number two booth mm-hmm. two years ago when Romo debuted with Jim Nance. It would have been a nice little comparison. But the number one trait I think you need on TV right now, and I think you see it, whether it's news, politics, sports, reality TV, is authenticity, right? I mean, I don't have to like the person, but if I truly believe what I see is what I get, <laughs> I think that does move the needle with viewers. And he may be dour, and I covered him in Denver, and he certainly wasn't the most chipper guy to deal with for, for sure. <laughs> but that's really who he is. And i got to give him credit. He has not acquiesced. He has not changed. He's just the same guy he's always been, and now it's just to a greater, more wide audience. So I actually think he would work, because even though he may not be the most lovable guy like Romo, he would be real and authentic. And I think that's something that viewers today gravitate to more than anything else. One quick thing I would tell you, I heard Jim Nancy a few years ago, when both of them were supposedly heading towards the booth, and there was a discussion who was going to be better, Cutler or Romo, uh, Nance did a practice game with Romo. This is way before they did the practice game at the Hall of Fame or their three-year run here. And Sean McManus, who's the chairman of CBS, called Jim Nance and said, um, uh, what do you think about Tony? And he said to him, just fast forward to the fourth quarter. They did like a Raiders mm. game that had been played the season before. Let's just go to the fourth quarter. This discussion is over because there was some real discussion about how Romo would fare against Cutler. Romo's obviously soared. Uh, Cutler's been kind of out of the game. But I do think that because he's unique and what you see is what you get, and I don't think he would put on a face for anybody, that authenticity with Cutler in a strange way would actually sell. Sort of like when Billy Packer was doing basketball. He was kind of a negative guy, but you knew he was a negative guy, and he had a long and prosperous network career. He certainly did that. Last topic for you today, Zubin Mahente from ESPN. The XFL, Zubin, week one, uh, numbers were certain, they were better than the American Alliance of Football. Uh, I think about 3.3 million viewers was the average for that, which was, as we, as I learned yesterday, about the same as this year's Liberty Bowl. Um, week two, obviously, is going to be a big tell. Does the buzz from week one carry over? Does it grow into week two? On the surface, I thought the the football was better than I saw last year, Zubin, when the um, AA, I can't, I never get that, American Alliance of Football, AAF, uh, came into uh, came to be. Uh, I'm going to give it another chance this week, Zubin, I am. Um, do you think that the country will? I think so. I've got a couple of reasons. One, this, this is how much TV viewing has changed. You're right. The Alliance of American Football got 2.9 million viewers on CBS. The XFL got about 3.3. However, for your younger listeners, this may blow their mind. If you go back to the original XFL, which the new XFL is going out of its way to pretend never happened, but if you go back <laughs> to it, week one, 14 million viewers. You want to Jeez. think about how much TV has changed, 14 million. I think a couple reasons it'll work. One, conspicuously, I think this is by design. It has nothing to do with the ratings. You didn't see Vince at all this weekend. They want to make mm. it about football and keep it away from the WWE I didn't watch all four games in their entirety, but I didn't see Vince seen or mentioned anywhere. I think that's a deliberate plan. I'm not saying it would hurt ratings or anything, but it keeps the focus on football. Secondly, I ran into Steve Levy on Super Bowl Sunday, and we were just talking about it since he would be broadcasting the first game six days later. And he said, keep something in mind. He said, the two highest-selling ticket bases in the XFL, for whatever it's worth, are the Seattle Dragons and the St. Louis Battlehawks, the latter of whom is sold 30,000 tickets. Wow. They have not played a home game yet, Seattle or St. Louis. To your point, Ken, they always talk about sustainability week two. 
what will what will it look like when there's thirty thousand people watching at the home of the Rams, the old home of the Rams, and Seattle's going to have a ton of fans, relatively speaking, as well. So week two certainly is not going to lack for fan interest or empty seats because the two highest selling teams ticket wise have yet to play a home game and they both will this weekend. What does that mean for week three or week four? Who knows? But for the all important week two, I think you're going to see at least in half the venues, pretty decent crowds. And I think that's just a slow uptick on what can it, what you can expect. I have no idea how the football is going to manifest itself. Even Levy had said he didn't really know how good the football was going to be, but at least it appears for one more week, the buzz will be good and the crowds will look good, especially in those two cities. Zubin, as always, you've been very gracious with your time. Thank you for doing this forward uh, for us, and we will uh, talk to you in a week's time. Thank you, Zubin. Always, guys. Take care. Good to talk to you. Zubin Mahente, formerly WOI, uh, here in uh, uh, in Des Moines. Spent some time here before he went to Denver and found his way out to Bristol. We'll take a time out. Come back, finish up the program. Miller and Condon with you until noon. It's Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, and now on 106.com. Hi, Miller and Condon. Welcome back. 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. Buster Douglas is on ESPN. 30 years ago today was the... Uh, one of the bigger upsets in the history of sports. Tremendous underdog knocked off seemingly an unbeatable Mike Tyson. 42 to 1. Is that what he was? Was the odds. They had that up there on the screen that he went off at it. And at that price, I don't know if you're going to find a bigger one-off type of game upset. No, you not have at one, 42 to 1. Now, you have one historically that I think is in the conversation. Well, I think the, the 1980 United States Olympic team beating Russia in was the, the biggest upset of my, of, of my sports life. Because the Russians players, Trent, they were all NHL caliber players. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Olympic team had, had guys that played in the NHL, but no Hall of Famers. I mean, they had; they were all amateurs. Right. These they are amateurs. Young. Yes. This is the um, day before professionals became a part of it. Pr- right. Precisely. No and, NHL players at the time on that team. And the USSR team was oh, comprised stacked. of stacked older guys. I mean, we're yep. talking the U.S. team, a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds. And they toyed with them the week before the Olympics started. They what was beat the final them like, that? 12-3 or 10-2 yeah. or something yeah. like that. Just ridiculous. It was a laugher. So that would be the biggest upset for me. Is 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 the Tyson Douglas for you? It is for me. I, because I of the odds, the odds, yeah. and I just remember the shock for me. I was just born in 1980, so mm-hmm. in fact, I wasn't born yet when that Olympics happened. <laughs> okay, and uh, that I remember. I was at my grandma's who had ESPN, staying up late, and it was always such a. I got to stay up late and watch Sports Center as long as I wanted on those Saturdays. I stayed with grandma. And they just started showing on the bottom line. It was just the screen was it in grabs. Japan? It was in Japan, it was, right? Yeah. yeah, and they had no video, just the shots uh. of him on the mat. I played on my Nintendo, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. He was, for a nine-year-old, invincible. Mm-hmm. There, he was, in my mind, never, ever going to be beat. And then that happens, and well, we know what happened to Buster Douglas afterwards. Mm-hmm. He, he enjoyed his fame after that one. In many ways, and uh, ate himself basically out of the ring yeah. in his next fight afterwards. But that, too many that one certainly was at the top for me. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm sure there's others, um, and I and I certainly respect your opinion on that one. Forty two to one for crying out. I don't know what the uh, what the Russians would have been favored over the. Uh, but do in you a believe in miracles? Game, you just, I mean, 
Right. 12 to 1, 15 yeah, to 1, something like that. That's what also makes kind of boxing compared to a game. Well, team sport individuals. Right. Sport, right. Ma- makes it even that much more difficult. But it's a fun conversation. We'll put that on the list, uh, revisit it coming up this summer on a slow June Mark day. Mark it down. Uh, David Kaplan, mark this down. He'll join us tomorrow. I think Cappy might be in Arizona. Oh, really? For spring training? For spring training. Always goes early. Well, if he's not there this week when we talk to him tomorrow, he'll certainly be there next week, one would assume. So Cappy joins the program tomorrow. We'll get his take on MLB's postseason expansion plans and uh, some other topics as well. All right, uh, Murph and Addy coming up today at 2. The Fanatics are in at 4. Morning rush tomorrow at 6 a.m. That'll do it, Trent Condon. Rhode Island tonight. That's your play? Grab the Rams 10. There you go. 1460 KXNO, 106.3.